Welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast that explores the world of wine, beer, and spirits through the lens of a glass. From New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're talking about terroir. What the hell is it? And does it even matter? Uh, Zach, like, what's your thought on terroir? Well, you know, I think it's actually a really fascinating question and one that I grapple with a lot. Uh, as a sommelier, you know, we we kind of learn about the concept of terroir as being this sort of somewhat undefinable French concept of a sense of place. That's sort of the the, ter- the best English translation that I've heard. And it, the idea is that wines and to some extent other beverages like um, certain uh, like single malt scotch or other beverages um, can evoke a sense of place that this beverage that you're drinking could have only possibly been made in this one place, whether that is a, a single vineyard somewhere in Burgundy or maybe a slightly broader region uh, in other parts of the world. And that that the discerning drinker can sense that, can tell that there is a difference between, say, as I mentioned, not just this Pinot Noir that was grown in Burgundy and this Pinot Noir that was grown in California, but this Pinot Noir that was grown in Volnay and this Pinot Noir that was grown in Chambol Moussigny or in specific Grand Cru vineyards. And I kind of don't buy it. I mean, I buy it in the sense that those wines taste different, but I think we have gotten to a point where the there's not a lot of um, actual evidence to support the idea that the things that have typically been talked about as contributing to terroir are monolithic or are um, unvariable. So yeah, geology might matter. Yeah, climate certainly matters. But the idea that those things are constants that you can see expressed year in and year out, vintage to vintage in a wine is in my opinion, kind of bullshit. It doesn't mean that those wines aren't exciting. <laughs> it doesn't mean that those wines aren't exciting or that they're not worth, uh, you know, sort of uh, going crazy over. But but there are so there's so much that can be done in winemaking that can obscure uh, whatever we would think about as terroir or or any other sense of place that I, that doesn't ever get talked about. That the decisions that are made in the vineyard and in the winery um, that either can be attempts to um, evoke a sense of place through winemaking technique or through viticulture that are not necessarily inherent to the place itself. And I'll give one example of this, um, which I hope can kind of help sort of show what I'm talking about. So when I was first learning about wine, one of the first things I learned was that Chablis was going to be chalky. And the explanation I heard for this was, well, of course, it grows on, uh, you know, many of the vineyards are on these uh, chalk and limestone soils in, in France. And so, well, of course, like the, that's what the wine is, the grapes are grown in. Of course, they're going to taste like that. And then you learn a little bit more, you do some more digging, and you realize, well, actually, a fair number of the Chablis vineyards that aren't the Grand Cru vineyards are actually on all kinds of soils, which may have some amount of limestone, but are not certainly pure limestone. And then you learn that scientifically, there's no evidence that grape, that vines absorb any material that's uh, like, you know, any of those minerals that are then passed on to the grapes. And then you learn that actually a lot of what we associate as minerality has to do with various sulfur compounds that are produced when um, the wines are made and then bottled. And you start, you kind of start to wonder if this sort of idea of terroir is maybe some part true, but a lot part marketing hype? I don't know. That's that's kind of where I sit on it now, which kind of bums me out because I really wish it was true. I wish that we could we could say definitively that like, oh yes, this wine from this place tastes this way because this place is unique. And there is some of that, but man, I wish it was I wish it was more true than I think it is. Man, Zach, you're a buzzkill today. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I feel like you're just you you literally just went and we're like, yeah, like 
guess what? Like terroir is a bunch of is it's the same as believing in elves and trolls under the bridge and fairies and Santa Claus. Uh, and you know what? You probably are right, but I do. I, and I, I think, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, and there's been lots of studies as we both know that have tried to prove the existence of terroir that have had a very hard time doing it. Um, and I think what I chalk this all up to is like, can't we just have some romanticism in wine? Um, I completely agree with you. I, I find a very hard, I find it very hard to, you know, actually prove that terroir is real. I was actually having a conversation with a colleague last night. We were doing a big uh, wine tasting in the office of like a bunch of different Sauvignon Blancs from around the world. And he was, and he asked me, he's like one of our younger writers. And he said, uh, what's, which one of these wines is made correct? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, what's the correct, like which wine tastes the way it's supposed to taste, the way Sauvignon Blanc is supposed to taste. And my, you know, my response to him was like, I think that's such a bullshit question to ask. Like, you're trying to tell me that I, you want me to tell you that the Sancerre or the the wine from you know the white from Bordeaux is the correct way Sauvignon Blanc Sauvignon Blanc is supposed to taste like that's that's so dumb like <laughs> it can taste however it tastes depending on where it's grown and I think that like that's that's this issue with uh, with wine in general that like there's this weird snobism that we get into where and I think it's only the you know the the five to ten percent of like real wine snobs that really you know, want to believe that there is one place in the world in which this grape exists that's better than anywhere else and there, and then equate that to terroir. Yeah. And I don't really know if that's true. I think you could be right that it's marketing. But then at the same time, like I also am coming from the other, you know, standpoint of as a wine make, as a wine drinker, I do love the romanticism besides this idea of terroir. Like, oh, this is a sense of place and whatever. And the only thing that I can ever connect terroir to that that makes terroir relevant for me is when I try to understand it in relation to other produce. And I think that that's, that's what we don't talk about enough uh, as wine educators, as, you know, people in the wine industry to general lay people, which is like, look, grapes are produce. And certain grapes grow differently in certain places and based on the environment they're grown in and therefore they have certain tastes. And the way that I think about it a lot is like for me being a Southerner, right? Like a Georgia peach just tastes better than a South Carolina or a California peach. Like, sorry, they just do. Like, I don't know why they just do. Or like a New Jersey tomato people, you know, up here will tell you is the best tomato in the Northeast. No one knows why you can grow tomatoes all over the Northeast during the summer, but everyone, you know, goes all in for New Jersey tomatoes. Hmm. Like, is that the environment? Maybe like that to me is the closest I can get to saying there is something like terroir, but yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right that once you start asking too many questions, like everything comes undone. (laughs) It's the the downside to learning is that sometimes the, yeah, those, those, beautiful and uh elaborate sort of ideal fantasies that you've constructed you've constructed for um wine or whatever else do kind of have a way of of at least falling apart partially and i want to i want to be i want to be clear about one point which is not that like the where the wine is grown or, or where the grapes are grown has no impact on the taste of the wine that's actually obviously a huge uh impactful point i think the the point i'm trying to make though is that it's not the only thing that matters that it can easily be obscured and that we sort of there's a default to ascribing a wine's flavor or other qualities to terroir when there's often a more correct 
uh, explanation for why a wine tastes the way it does than just like, oh, that's the sense of place. Because, you know, the, the, it, you, you start to hear it and see it, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, when you when you have winemakers from, like, say, new wine regions that are talking about the sense of terroir in their vineyard that's eight years old, and you're just kind of like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you don't... This might be a sense of place, but you don't have. I mean, where there's no, there's no, uh, there's no history here. There's no, there's no way to talk about terroir in any meaningful sense because no one's, no one knows. And so instead of let's talk about this wine, let's talk about how good it is or not good it is. But let's not try and kind of wrap it up in this um, sort of soft focus term that just doesn't have any real uh, meaning to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. That's definitely a valid point. It, it is really hard, I think, in in the beginning to even understand what terroir means. Uh, I think that's you know that's why we continue to use a French word um, that doesn't you know that we're not really translating in any other language. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes wine interesting is that there is this romanticism to wine, this mysticism that I think you know, is beautiful and we, you know, we can talk about and really feel romantic about and, you know, have these beautiful images of birds chirping and, you know, oh, these, this certain ladybug has this influence on the, on the grapes and yada, yada, yada. That's really great. But at the end of the day, then when you, when you try to validate these beliefs you have in the world of wine with science, you can't. And maybe that's okay. And maybe we should just stop trying to validate them with science and prove to every, like, it's just like trying to say like, look, believing from the age, I actually didn't grow up with Santa Claus, but I'm sure for most people believing. So let's take the tooth fairy as my example, believing from my age of, you know, three or four, whenever my teeth started falling out until 10, when I lost them all, that the tooth fairy existed was a really beautiful idea. If I started trying to prove it, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would have ruined a lot of that romanticism of going through that life-changing moment. If I start trying to prove why wine tastes the way that it does or why this specific wine from a specific you know region of the world I think is better, it ruins wine because you can't – I don't think you truly can scientifically prove it. And I actually think that inability to scientifically prove these things that are still to experience tasters very clearly evident in the wine is part of the magic of wine. That that it is in some way too complex for us to understand through a purely scientific lens. And it gives me hope that these people who are trying to synthesize wine will not succeed, at least in a in a way that is um, convincing to to professionals and, and experienced drinkers, because it shouldn't be simply a matter of um, assembling a certain set of uh, chemical compounds or biologic compounds in the right order to be able to reproduce, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy or whatever, that it it should have to have some connection to, as you were talking about before, something that actually grew uh, in the place, uh, in a specific place. But I do think that it's important to think about the history of terroir and its sort of common usage in wine terms, because I think, and, and again, this is my understanding of it, if I'm wrong, please correct me, that this term really inserted itself into the wine conversation in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was the French who really pushed this idea forward because after several high-profile comparative tastings where wines that were not from France were uh, regarded as as being better than uh, very classic and highly regarded French wines, the the French had to sort of um, regroup and talk about, well, okay, wait, so 
it, yeah, maybe in a blind tasting or in this sort of very uh, crass way, you know, these these wines are are comparable, but like they don't have our sense of place. You know, they don't they don't evoke a hillside in Burgundy or a famous chateau in Bordeaux or whatever. And again, it's not to say that there's no truth to this, and it's not like the term was invented in 1979 or whatever. But but its entry into this sort of common lexicon of wine conversation really happened um, in this in this period, from what I understand. And as such, it's important to understand that, like I said, it, it's in some ways a marketing tool, and it was a marketing tool for the French first, and has become a marketing tool for uh, uh, yeah, winemakers everywhere. I didn't say I was blowing anyone's mind here. I'm just, I'm just no, talking. You are. About it. I know. I no. I think you're blowing everyone's mind. Listening. I'm. What I'm trying to say is the French are like the best marketers ever in the world. Uh-huh. They invented marketing, and this idea that you're talking about, I think, hopefully. Sh- while most people probably don't realize it, should come as no surprise to anyone, which is the French are really good at protecting the the French French wines, French fashion, et cetera, right? Like made in France, tag on, you know, on clothes gets a premium. Designed in France gets a premium. There's more really high-end French marketing agencies than any other country in the world. I mean, America now sort of rivals them from Mad Men days. Um, but, you know, like some of the top, you know, the two largest French companies – uh, Polaris and Havas own more marketing companies in the world than any other co- two companies. The French get marketing very well. And I think like what you're saying is crazy, but true, which is, I mean, I never knew that about the seventies, but that makes complete sense to me. Of course they would do that. It's it's the same reason that they would continue to call, um, wines by their, the, the names of the towns that they're in. I actually think it is the snobbiest, most bullshit thing in the entire world that you should expect some random person to know what the wine made in your little <laughs> village tastes like and, is, and what grape it's made out of. I think yeah. it is so fucking ridiculous. I was having this conversation yesterday again because I, as you know, was just in Paris recently. And like even myself, someone who's been in the world of wine for like 15 plus years was sitting at, at, at restaurants with my wife thinking like, okay, wait, like what grape is in this wine from this really small village? Like I, I know, I know this is Cab Franc, but like, come on, it's a tiny little village that yeah. you just can't, sometimes you don't remember. And they're really We're good. talking about you, Borgoyle. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on. They're, they're just, they're so good at preserving that. And that's why, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw the news recently, but like the, uh, Bruno Payard of the, you know, Champagne, he went off. This. Yeah, he went off the champ, like the organization for Champagne because he's so pissed that another Champagne producer is allowing Constellation to sell it Champagne in the US because Constellation also owns other brands that call themselves American Champagne. Like the French are willing to do whatever it takes to protect that they invented wine even though they didn't and that they make the best wine even though in some cases they don't anymore and that therefore there should be this romanticism behind their products. And oh my God, of course – (laughs) <laughs> they invented the term terroir. It just yeah. like it makes so much freaking sense. <laughs> well, and I think the 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 point about marketing is is a good one, and it wasn't even something I was aware of. But I also think it's important to to understand the effect that this has had on wine more broadly, because if it was just reserved to French wine, then I think you know we would talk about that as sort of an idiosyncratic quality of French wine, just like you know the wines from various other countries have their own sort of idiosyncrasies and and qualities that are 
distinct to them. But I think the the issue that I've found in my own experience, and and I would be curious to hear if it's come this has been this way for you too, is a sort of fetishization for like single vineyard wines when it may or may not be warranted. Um, and I think it's this idea that like, well, if we put a named vineyard on a on a label, even if no one's ever heard of it, then it implies a degree of quality or a, a premium wine. When like it's one thing to put, you know, for all we may. Th- you know, talk shit about the French in certain ways. There's no doubt that, like, you know, Le Montrochet, the Grand Cru Vineyard, is like has a long track record of producing world class wine, and so that being on a label means something. It may mean that you're paying an absolute ridiculous amount of money for the wine, but it's at least been uh, somewhat uh, proven over time that those wines are are highly regarded. Whereas if you put whatever random vineyard you happen to own or uh, buy fruit from on the label, you know, there's no guarantee that there's quality there. I mean, some of the named vineyards that have that have cropped up in, you know, newer wine regions are are really high quality, of course, but a lot of them are not, or at least are unproven as of yet. But it's this idea that like, well, if you can define a wine by the tiny patch of land that it came from, that implies quality, even if that isn't necessarily the case that like the smaller production or, or smaller uh, place of origin doesn't necessarily make the wine better like your new jersey your tomatoes from new jersey might be better but i don't know if you would say like well but this is from you know the southeast part of trenton so these are the best tomatoes i mean i don't know maybe i think i think single vineyard is such crap i mean i i get that there are some single vineyard uh sites that are, that are just good for whatever reason but like i was in a more up-and-coming wine region recently um in the United States. And like, there's, there's so every wine producer was producing a single vineyard. And I was like, how do you know? How do you know that this is so much better? You've been producing wine in this region for 20 years and you're making single vineyards. Come on. And there's, I mean, it's completely again, marketing. And I, I want people, I want people who listen to this podcast to come at me about this and prove to me that I'm wrong. I've gone and had wines from certain producers whose, you know, blended wines, that are much cheaper were far superior to their single vineyards. Far well, I think superior. a lot of winemakers, a lot of winemakers fall into the trap of it's not. It's about probably a few different things, but one of them is the idea that distinctiveness equals quality. Because I think you hear from I hear from a lot of winemakers like, well, this site, whether it's a single vineyard or this block from this vineyard or whatever, always has this distinctive character, and it's like, okay, great, but is that necessarily the flavor I want dominating my wine? Like, it's cool that this block of Syrah that you have tastes just like you know. Um, you know, black olive, but like, is that the only flavor I want in my Syrah? I mean, I like it in Syrah. I think it's a cool component of a wine, but if it's the flavor that dominates the wine, I'm going to question whether maybe you shouldn't have blended in something else to create a better product. Like, again, there there are not a lot of places, in my opinion, not a lot of sites on earth where the winemakers should just pick the grapes and 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 make the wine and do absolutely no other thinking about it. There are definitely places like that, and and some of them do exist. You know what proves – I think – you know what's the best uh, example of what, what proves that it's bullshit? So the best example to me is – okay, so fine. You have these designated Premier Cru vineyards, Grand Cru vineyards in Burgundy, right? Which is where like everyone says they've gotten this idea for single vineyards, right? Okay. Some of the other most expensive wine in the world besides these Grand Cru vineyards come from the same country from a region that does it completely differently. Mm-hmm. So Lafitte – which was classified as a first growth, can buy a new vineyard as long as it's in Puyak, and all of a sudden that becomes a first growth vineyard. Uh-huh. Come on. Yeah. So like well. <laughs> so, I mean both systems are kind of ridiculous. Let's it's, be clear. They're both ridiculous, but it also proves that like there's 
it's just it's all kind of it's if it's if the wine is good, the wine is good, right? Like either either issue is so ridiculous that I just can't even. And all of it goes back to marketing. Like you know, I mean, I I recently was at a wine tasting and you know I, I took two colleagues uh, and I got to have one of those wines. I mean, not obviously the super 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 expensive wine from this producer, but I got to have a you know a DRC wine. Meh. We're pausing for dramatic effect. No, I said I said hmm, as in like we're pausing. It was for, fine for dramatic effect here. Yeah, it was fine. Like it, and I turned to my colleagues and I said is this me is it because we're just at this weird tasting that i feel this way and they were like no this was fine and then we went to this barolo producer and the wine was unreal <laughs> you know and it was just it was so crazy that in the same portfolio tasting but the the it was 20 people deep to try mm-hmm. one of these wines from drc and again i think it's like yes i am sure that the highest end drc that sells for $14,000 or whatever a bottle is amazing but you know, that reputation has gone all the way down through all the other wines. And at some point, like, you know, is that, are those vineyards, are those vineyards really so much better than other people's vineyards that didn't get that designation so much, so long ago? I mean, you know, the other thing that no one in Burgundy wants to talk about, I don't know if you know this, Zach, but it goes back to terroir. So basically during World War II, um, and there is issues to back, there is uh, some stuff to back this up. Jancis has written about this a little bit. So during World War II, the Germans wouldn't rip up Burgundy vineyards that were ge- that were designated as Premier Cru and Grand Cru. So they start. So the French started designating in the parts of Burgundy controlled by Vichy France more vineyards as controlled by prim- as mm-hmm. as being designated as Premier Cru and Grand Cru because the yeah. Germans wouldn't. Rip- so, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sure those vineyards have always produced great wine, but like. There were a lot of other reasons those designations happened besides the fact that like they were considered based on this this mythical idea called terroir to produce the best wine. Well, it's definitely true that that there's a lot of this when again, kind of just like terroir in itself, when you dig into it a little bit, you go, hmm, like this system that seems like very clear or very um like, you know, sort of merit based actually has a lot of um let's say, either legacy, you know, there's definitely Premier Crew and to some extent Grand Cru vineyards in various places where, you know, the quality was uh, maybe a a certain level at one point, but has not uh, maintained that level or other vineyards that are not designated one or both or one or another of those are, are on that level or better. And again, it comes down to, for one, as you mentioned way before, drinking what you like, but also, you know, sort of not just deferring to established hierarchical rankings for wines. And again, to come back to what you're talking about with Bordeaux, the best example of this to me is that that, you know, that ranking was done in 1855 and a good portion of the vineyards that are now planted to Cabernet Sauvignon were actually planted to Malbec. Then Phylloxera hit and they were replaced with Cabernet Sauvignon. So, so the ranking system that was devised was based on a varietal and vines that no longer essentially exist. There is a little bit of Malbec in Bordeaux, but not a lot. And so, know. you know, again, do you really want to be paying so uh, paying fealty to a system that was that was literally created under Napoleon the Third and based on only the sale price of those wines? You know, is that the wine that you want to spend thousands of dollars on a, on a bottle of? I mean, maybe if you don't care about those thousands of dollars, but for those of us who do, um, I, I think you can do better for your for your dollar than just throwing it after something that whose name 
uh, whose value is in part just the name recognition. Not to say that, look, I've had a couple of expressions of, of some of the first growth Bordeaux that were really, really, really good. I just don't think they're necessarily demonstrably better than some of the other really great Bordeaux that's out there that doesn't cost a tenth of what those cost. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I think the moral of this entire story that you and I are both coming to is I just don't get caught up in it. You know, I think this idea of getting caught up in terroir and trying to understand like where the the best wine is grown in the world is kind of BS. Like enjoy the wine that you enjoy. And because and and if you do, you know, want to believe in terroir, then, you know, believe in it in the ways that we believe in everything for being romantic in the world of wine and just this, this magical thing that happens in the first place, which is that, I mean, who knew that, you know, when we would crush grapes and give off juice, we would get this awesome thing called wine once this, this you know, yeast got into it and turned it in alcohol. And that it would make us feel good and that would go super well with our food. Um, and, you know, it would it just heighten all of our conversations and, you know, the, the gatherings with people. Like, I think that's what's so magical about wine. And, like, maybe let's just stop trying to prove that a lot of these things exist because the second you start doing that, like, everything comes undone. You know, it's like, like, don't ask the magician how the magician does his <laughs> tricks. Just like yeah. watch the magic show and enjoy it. But I think at the same time, you, you, you can, you should do that, but you should also be a little bit skeptical when the magician is um, maybe trying to, trying to also convince you that uh, they're the best magician ever or something. I don't know. The, the analogy is breaking down for me a little bit, but I think it's important to be aware that terroir is – that the sense of place in a wine or, or the sense that a wine is a product of a specific place is a very powerful thing and hopefully thing a thing that we can all appreciate. And I'm certainly not saying that like, oh, whatever, just blind, just blend grapes from all over the world together and make the best tasting wine you can. I think I think some degree of fidelity to a sense of place is – or to a, a place of origin for wine is important. But at the same time, you know, let's not kid ourselves that, yeah, that that um, you, you want to, you know, you, you can believe what you want to believe. But somewhere down there, you should also be aware that a lot of people who are talking about terroir are doing so because they're trying to sell you something, not because it's true. <laughs> I I completely agree. But I also just uh, returned my tickets I'd gotten you to David Blaine. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> to, I mean, I'll have to break the news to my wife. Like magic, it's fine. Um, <laughs> this was a very interesting conversation. I uh, I really enjoyed it. I actually think there probably even could be a part two just about um, you know the world of marketing when it comes to wine and thinking about that. But you know. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't wait to continue this stuff. I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you guys have thoughts on this, especially if you disagree with us, or if you believe if you believe in the Tooth Fairy or Terroir, you should definitely let us know. Yeah, seriously, let me know and come at Zach. All right, <laughs> talk to you guys. Talk to you later. Take care. All right, have a good one. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patrick, and the show is produced by Zach Jewell and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.